0: All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I hope all of you guys are having an incredible week so far. I apologize sincerely for the technical difficulties that we had during last night's show. So because of that, two things. First of all, thank you guys for watching that video and putting up with it. Um, I promise we're working on making sure that doesn't happen again. But as a result, we're going to change our schedule up a little bit this week because we're going to be doing some... Um, stuff behind the scenes to make sure that we can go live without having those problems again. So tonight's live show is canceled, and what the rest of this week is going to look like instead is today, we're going to talk about two Eastern Conference teams that uh, that are on hot streaks, the Boston Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers. Then the back half of today's show, we're going to hit the two teams that we were supposed to hit last night, but that we cut off because of the technical difficulties. That's the Indiana Pacers and the Minnesota Timberwolves in light of the Carl Anthony Towns trade. So those are the four teams we're hitting today. Then tomorrow, we're going to cover all of the teams and games that we were going to cover in tonight's show. We're just going to do it. Instead of going live, we're going to pre-record it and release it tomorrow. Friday, we're going to have our uh, quarter of the season awards. And then Saturday morning, we'll have a video cover, uh, covering the Friday night game. So there will end up being six shows this week by the time it's all said and done. You guys know the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. It's also where I'm putting footage breakdowns these days. I did one today specifically talking about Malcolm Brogdon and what he's been doing for the Celtics. So you're going to want to follow me there to get that video. And then last but not least, if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. On that note, let's talk some basketball. So the Boston Celtics, we talked about them last week, but we really aren't talking about them nearly enough for how good they are, especially since that's what I want the primary focus of this team, uh, of this show to be, is on the best teams in the league. So we're going to talk about them again today and probably again tomorrow after the Miami Heat game. Um, they're 13 and one in their last 14 games in that span. No other team in the league has fewer than four losses. So that's how incredibly dominant they've been compared to the rest of the league. They are first in offense with a 6.3 point gap between them and second place over this 14 game span. They are still 15th in defense in this 14 game span, but they've had incredibly dominant stretches and honestly they're scoring so well, that their defense, they haven't been devoting as much energy to it for spurts of these games because they just haven't felt the urgency. But when they felt the urgency, every time I've watched them, they've been able to hit that switch, shut everybody's water off, and get the win. Um, In this 14-game stretch, they are first in net rating with a 7.4 point per 100 possessions gap over second place. Isn't that completely insane? Their average margin of victory in their 13 wins was was 14 points, and they beat a lot of good teams. They beat that Kings team that was red hot. They beat the Dallas Mavericks. They beat the Pelicans. They beat the Hawks. They beat the Nuggets. They beat the Grizzlies and more. Everyone's playing extremely well. They have six players averaging double figures. Jason Tatum is averaging 31, 8, and 5 on 60% true shooting. Jalen Brown, 26, 6, and 4 on 64% true shooting. And then Malcolm Brogdon, Al Horford, Marcus Smart, and Derek White are all over 12 points per game during the stretch. Malcolm Brogdon, in limited minutes, is averaging 14 points per game on 64% true shooting. If you extrapolate it out to a per 36, which is like a normal shift in probably the amount of minutes that he'll be playing in a playoff setting, he's been averaging 23 points and 6 assists per 36 minutes. The Malcolm Brogdon trade has been an absolute home run. That legit additional ball handler addressed a very specific weakness for the Celtics. In addition to that, Marcus Smart improved as a ball handler. Jason Tatum improved as a ball handler. Even Jalen Brown, up to <coughs> excuse me, up to four assists per game in this stretch. He's handling the ball a lot better. So as a team, they've kind of addressed their biggest flaw and as a result they've just been kind of kicking everybody's ass. But Brogdon in particular, I think, is spearheading that so this season, he scored 138 points on 134 pick and rolls, including passes, which is in the 68th percentile. And he's really accomplishing that with a combination of three things. He's got a deadly pull-up jumper, shooting 45% on the season on pull-up jumpers, including 50% from three. <coughs> Excuse me, those numbers are from this uh, this uh, 14-game stretch. He also has like a really nice left-handed finish. He... Uh, <clears throat> You know, it's funny because there's a bunch of different ways to go about finishing on the left side of the rim. Um, a lot of players will, like LeBron does this a lot. You know, Taylor Horton Tucker is the most exaggerative uh, example of this. But like, it's, they'll get to the left side of the rim and they'll just kind of position their body between the defender and the rim. and They'll almost shoot like backwards behind their head with their right hand. Brogdon does more of that traditional, like he gets his right shoulder into you. Then he extends his left arm way out. And he's almost got like a scooping like hook left-handed layup that he knocks down seemingly every single time, just using his body as a shield to get that separation. And then he has a willingness to use the roll man. So it's kind of like the perfect combination crafty finishing around the rim, excellent pull-up jump shooting and the willingness to pass to that role man when the screen defender is helping that's going to make you effective in pick and roll. So I put I put together a bunch of clips of this on my Twitter feed again at underscore jason lt where you can kind of see an example of a breakdown of the success that Malcolm Brogdon's been having in pick and roll this year. But the bottom line is as we know with the Celtics, they have, you know, the deepest roster in the league. And they've got a ton of guys that can play good driving kick basketball. So having another guy on the roster that can legitimately create advantages, not just for himself, but for his teammates, and presenting those advantage uh, situations to really good basketball players, you're going to end up scoring a a shit ton of points. And that's what the Boston Celtics are doing. Uh, Jason Tatum's passing is coming around finally. You guys heard what I said before the year. Like I I think it's so important, especially in the Celtics system, to have guys that are willing to make that first pass to just get the defense into rotation. And to start this season, Tatum was really hunting his shot. But over the course of this 14-game span, his assists are back up where they should be around five per game um, and kind of uh, targeting that, uh, that specific role a little bit better. When he passes out of pick and roll this year, the Celtics have scored 108 points on 99 possessions, which is in the 79th percentile. And when he shoots or passes out of ISO, the Celtics have scored 111 points on 104 possessions, which is in the 70th percentile. Uh, Jalen Brown's been one of the best pick-and-roll creators in the league this year. He's good for 127 points on 115 pick-and-rolls, which is in the 86th percentile. I was watching a bunch of footage on it this morning. It's it's just classic what you'd expect with Jalen Brown, a good combination of downhill athleticism getting to the rim, and a deadly pull-up jump shot. In this 14-game stretch, he's taken 60 pull-up jumpers, and he's made 33 of them, including 8 for 19 from 3, which is 42%. So Jalen Brown playing some of the best basketball of his career. And then Marcus Smart. Honestly, guys, like, and Celtics fans I'm sure would speak to this. From what I can tell, from what I've been watching, Marcus Smart is kind of the secret hero of the Celtics offense this year. His combination of a, a, a really good handle and quick first step and ability to get defenders trapped in jail so he can use them to get over the top of screens. That, in combination with his posting up, because uh, he can, he typically draws a good matchup just because of the way that the Celtics present matchup problems for teams. He's the guy that is starting so many of these Celtics possessions by getting the defense into rotation, and then everybody's capitalizing on that attention. And then he's always been a really good passer, It's always been one of his best skills. But the game is really just coming together for him. And the numbers, the resulting numbers are insane. He has scored 100... The Celtics have scored 155 points on 110 Marcus Smart pick and rolls this year, which is the best in the league. Literally, the best in the league for guys in that range of volume. He's also scoring 1.3... Or the Celtics are scoring 1.3 points per Marcus Smart post-up, which is in the 95th percentile. So you're getting just incredibly high-level creation for Marcus Smart. Just simply drawing good defensive matchups and using pick-and-roll and and post-ups to generate advantages for his team and everyone creating off of those advantage situations. You know, it's funny, because as we kind of zoom out from the Celtics for a second, we all have, like, our our rules, um, our little philosophies that we have as basketball fans or as basketball coaches or as basketball players. And one of my big ones has been to never overreact to regular season trends, you know, like, um, especially for teams that are proven in the playoffs. So for instance, like last year's warriors, you know, they had a really, uh, a really bad regular season by their standards because of injuries for the most part, but they got off to a really hot start and then things kind of fell apart, uh, with injuries. And, um, there was a lot of pessimism surrounding the warriors going into that playoff run and I picked them in three out of the four rounds. And the one time I picked against them was against the Mavericks in the conference finals. And I said at the time I didn't feel good about it. It was more about the Luka matchup and what he had just done to the Suns than any sort of negativity towards the Warriors. And the main reason why is just like regular season basketball just doesn't mean that much to that type of team, that veteran experience team that's been there so many times. And I just had a feeling they'd put it all together and they did, which is why I picked them over even the Celtics. When they got to the finals, you know, a similar example to that is the, um, those Cavaliers teams with LeBron in like 2017 and 2018, like just really miserable, regular seasons where they're just BSing through every single night. I remember that 2017 team in particular really struggled in the second half of the year, just not playing any damn defense, losing a bunch of games. They had no business losing. And then what happened? They got into the playoffs and they literally whooped everyone's ass both of those years and made it to the finals. And so, you know, it's kind of like a lesson of mine, like not to overreact to regular season trends, but there's one specific regular season trend that I always pay really close attention to. And that's if there is a team that is just whooping everyone's ass, like it's not even close. That team usually keeps whooping everyone's ass until they get the trophy. And the two recent examples of this that I would use are the 2020 Lakers. All year long, people hyper-focused on roster flaws. They don't have enough shooting. There's not enough spacing. They play big too much. Will Anthony Davis get hurt? Is LeBron James still the best player in the world? All of that negativity was surrounding that Lakers team, and they were 24-3. And then guess what happened? They got to the postseason, and they beat everyone's ass never were even remotely threatened. The shooting didn't matter. LeBron was the best player in the world. Anthony Davis played like a top five player in the world, and they kicked everyone's ass. And so all of that negativity surrounding them ended up not making any sense. Meanwhile, there was all this hype surrounding a Clippers team that had never won a title and had a disappointing regular season, and they ended up losing to the Denver Nuggets in the second round. So that's kind of lesson number one. And then the second example of that was the 2015 Warriors. Kind of a similar thing. They won 67 games. had... They were And they were beating teams, like soundly beating teams. And all of this pessimism was directed towards the Warriors. Oh, they relied too much on jump shots. Steph Curry and Klay Thompson are you know, not good defensive players. And all the negativity that was directed towards them. And then guess what happened? They kicked everyone's ass in that postseason run. Yes, they had some injury luck, but they got the trophy at the end of the day. So like... You know, even last year's Celtics are a good example of this. From the, you know, middle of January to the end of the year, they kicked everyone's ass. And really, if it wasn't for an outstanding Steph Curry performance and a really bad Jason Tatum performance, they probably would have won the title last year. So, when a team is just killing everybody, we should probably pay close attention to it. Now, to be clear, I'm not picking them over either of Milwaukee or Golden State because of the respect I have for Giannis and the respect I have for Steph. But with the ascent of Jason Tatum this year and the ascent of Jalen Brown and how good they've been. I don't feel good about it. And I I would not be surprised if I ended up being wrong at the end of the day. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano. of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon, and Time, is back for another round. We have more insightful conversations between myself... Paul Muldoon and Paul McCartney about his life and career. It was 20 years ago today. We had a big bear of a man, who was called Mal Evans, it was on boardy, and uh, I was coming back on the plane, and he said, "Will you pass the salt and pepper?" And I misheard him. I said, "What, salt and pepper?" This season we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday band on the run, Hey Jude, and McCartney's favorite song in his entire catalog, here, there, and everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: All right, moving on to the Philadelphia 76ers. So they're up to 12-9 and nine now, thanks in large part to a 3-1 and one stretch with no Joel Embiid no Tyrese Maxey and no James Harden. And they've succeeded in that stretch based on three things. Their defense, Tobias Harris, and Joel Embiid, obviously. And I'm not just talking about this three-in-one stretch, but in general, since the Maxey and Harden injuries, the Sixers have been pretty good, and it's been because of those three guys. Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris, well, those two guys in their defense. So they're up to third in the league in defensive rating, in large part because they fixed their transition defense. If you guys remember, they had the worst transition defense in the league. To start the year, there was them and the Brooklyn Nets that were right there at the bottom of the league. But since the beginning of November, so for a month now, <clears throat> the Sixers have allowed just 1.07 points per transition play, which is second best in the league. So shout out to Doc Rivers for addressing and fixing that transition defense problem. Remember, defense will carry you through offensive struggles. It will keep you in games and give you a chance to win. And it helps you churn out wins, in particular against bad teams. So, for instance, like you got a back-to-back uh, set of games against the Orlando Magic, and Joel Embiid's out, Tyrese Maxey's out, you know James Harden is out. You don't have a ton of talent, but they defended extremely well. They had a 105 defensive rating in both of those games, and they were never really truly threatened. And they won both of them. Um, Tobias Harris, we shouted him out in that game where they beat the Nets last week. But he's really done a nice job stepping into a larger role because of the injuries, and he's been awesome. Remember, he got a max contract because of what he could do in a larger role, and then he was almost immediately slotted down into a smaller role. And so it's good to see that he has you know, stayed sharp in those more on-ball responsibilities so that when he had to step into this role, he could succeed. Since the James Harden injury, Tobias Harris is averaging 20 points per game on 56% true shooting. The Sixers are 6-1 six this year when Tobias Harris scores at least 20 points. He's been really good in isolation situations, 1.13 points per possession, which is the 84th percentile, including passes. And then he's scoring really well out of the post, although he's not passing well. And he's been really good attacking closeouts. Uh, just another big, strong wing that is skilled and versatile. And that sort of thing is just going to find a way to succeed in the NBA these days. Joel Embiid. <clears throat> so, he, obviously, he's been out of the, the lineup a little bit recently. Uh, But when he's been healthy, he's been amazing this season. He had 38-7 and against the Hawks on Monday. He's scoring a career-high 32 points per game on a ridiculous 63% true shooting percentage, which is the second-best efficiency mark of his career. And he's been outstanding defensively, just a bona fide superstar. You know, I know Joel Embiid's not my favorite player, but um, that's more just aesthetic stuff, like some of his demeanor stuff and some stuff with his foul-baiting, which drives me insane. Uh, but you know, I've I I tried to do my best to be fair about this stuff, and he's probably been one of the five best players in the league this year when he's been healthy. It's been health concerns that have been the problem there. And then Shake Milton, you know, when 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 Tyrese Maxey and James Harden went down, yeah, you lean more on Tobias Harris. Yeah, you lean more on Joel Embiid. Yeah, you can go more on wings. You're seeing a little bit more Matisse Thybul right, but you needed somebody in that backcourt to step up and. Anthony Melton honestly, has struggled a little bit, but Shake Milton has just been shooting the laces off the damn basketball during this stretch. Since the Tyrese Maxey injury, Shake Milton is averaging 23 points per game on 57% from the field, 54% from three, and 96% from the foul line, kind of like replacing in that uh, Seth Curry role that the Sixers used to use um, he's got a 69 percent true shooting percentage over this span. They needed somebody to step up, and Shake Milton has been that guy. If they can get D'Anthony Melton to find his shot, they'll be cooking with gas, and they'll still be really effective during this stretch without their backcourt. This is a super talented roster that has done a nice job of covering for their health issues with guys stepping into larger roles and succeeding, locking in on the defensive end of the floor, which is under their control, and Joel Embiid, their superstar, playing like a bona fide superstar. All right. Moving on to the Pacers. Uh, these are going to be pretty quick. So, <clears throat> obviously, we were going to shout them out last night when talking about the Lakers, but they deserve some, a little bit of a shout-out. So, they're playing really good basketball right now. They're fourth in the East in the standings right now, so they'd have home court in the first round. They're 10th in offense, 13th in defense. Ben Matherin is having a really nice rookie campaign. He's been thriving in the advantages that the Pacers create for him. So, He's not having, you know, like like most young players, he's struggling when he has to create his own shot in in stagnant situations like in a half court pick and roll set or in a late clock isolation set things along those lines. But when uh, like on out of bounds plays and when they run their sets, when they get or in closeout situations when he's catching with the defenses in rotation, he's doing a really nice job. Of scoring in those situations with just a simple combination of a good three point shot, a really nice floater, a good uh, with good lift and and shoots it high and soft, and then ability to finish around the rim. Uh, that combination, those three things together, have made him uh, really good at extending those advantages and finishing plays. They uh, they they run this baseline out of bounds play. You Pacers fans will recognize that They've run it all season. Uh, but basically, uh, like he'll start on the left side of the floor and they'll either set a single screen at the block or they'll set like an elevator screen where they've got two, like a screener at one block and then on another block and they'll shut the door as Ben runs through, but he'll run through to the right corner and he'll either ter- catch and turn and shoot, or he'll curl around it and work along the baseline to get back to the basket and score. And uh, they ran it twice in, a, uh, twice in that fourth quarter against the Lakers the other night. Both times, he read the defensive player and curled around and knocked down a floater along the baseline. And again, both of them were a little bit off, but he shoots it so soft and so high that he got, he got the bounce on both of them. Um, he's also having a lot of success attacking the rim in transition. Again, he's got a long ways to go as a primary shot creator, but that's the same uh, for all young guards in the league. Uh, but he does look like a really nice pickup for Kevin Pritchard and the Pacers. Miles Turner has completely returned to form. He's playing the best basketball of his career. His last 11 games, he's averaging 20 points and 9 rebounds, 2.3 blocks per game, and shooting 42% from three on over four attempts. Overall, he's shooting 57% from the field. Miles Turner has been so damn good that I'm stunned that the Lakers have not been begging the Pacers to make that deal. Now, my guess... Uh, uh, Jovan Buha uh, uh, went on um, Alan Silva's podcast this morning, I believe, and specifically said that the Lakers are leaning towards a deal that would send something like Kendrick Nunn and Patrick Beverly in a first instead of a Russell Westbrook-centric deal, and uh, um, if they do something along those lines that uh, I would be interested to see if they like kind of threw another minimum contract in there and tried to target just Miles Turner rather than Buddy Healed, giving them a legit big identity that they can go to. But the shout out to Miles Turner, he's been awesome. And then the big guy with the Pacers, we got a shout-out is Tyrese Halliburton. He's quickly become one of the best passers that we have in the league. And you guys know how much I value high-level playmaking. It's always been my favorite NBA skill set because, you know, all, all NBA players, especially in this era, are getting so good. At basic things, three-point shooting, one-dribble pull-ups, floaters, driving and kicking. The 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 league in general is getting a lot better at extending advantages and finishing plays. So having guys that can beat that initial wall of the defense to get them into rotation is so incredibly valuable, and Tyrese is doing that at an extremely high level. Um, he's got a 55% effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers this year. Which is the, you know, again, if you want to be a successful pick-and-roll ball handler or advantage creator in general, you have to have a pull-up jump shot, you have to be able to dribble and beat people off the dribble, and you have to be able to see the floor well enough to pass. And Tyrese adding that legit pull-up jumper has opened up Everything for him this year. He's one of the highest volume pick and roll guys this year. So he's only in the 63rd percentile in terms of point per possession, but he's run 445 pick and rolls this year. It's one of the foundational pieces of that Pacers offense, and he's getting more than one point per possession out of it, which is really good. That means that in a set defense situation, like half court, everyone's trapped, they can wear out and spam Tyrese Halliburton pick and roll and get good stuff out of it. So shout out to the Pacers playing some good basketball. I would imagine they'll pull the plug eventually. Um, but the one the one thing that's weird there is I, I, uh, it'd, be, it'd be a lot more interesting to look at them if Malcolm Brogdon was around still. But then again, you got to keep things open for guys like Benedict Mather and to develop. All right, moving on to the Minnesota Timberwolves. So Carl Anthony Towns had a calf strain. Thankfully, it wasn't worse. Obviously, we were all terrified when we saw that um, video clip. Uh, the, uh, the Wolves really need to take their time with this one because you have enough talent with Gobert and with Anthony Edwards and D'Angelo Russell. You have enough talent to play functional basketball during this stretch. So there's no reason to rush Carl Towns back. We've seen examples in NBA history, particularly with Kevin Durant in 2019, where a cash strain, when you rush back, can turn into an Achilles issue. So I hope they take their sweet time figuring this out in uh, getting Carl Towns healthy. The nice thing, the silver lining, whatever you want to talk about, the glass half full way of looking at it, is this will actually force the Timberwolves to play some more traditional lineups. So before we go any further, I just wanted to give you guys some lineup data about the Gobert Towns fit so you guys can kind of see what it's looked like in different combinations. These numbers are uh, per cleaning the glass, by the way, which filters out garbage time. So when Rudy Gobert and Carl Towns are both on the floor, the Wolves have a minus one net rating in 832 possessions. Remember, net rating is just differential per 100 possessions, meaning they're getting outscored by one point per 100 possessions. Um, defense is good, not great with both of them on the floor, which is concerning because that's why you make a Gobert trade, and then their offense is pretty bad. When Carl Towns is on and Rudy Gobert is off, they are dead even in, a, in 657 possessions. offensive rating, which is incredible, and 119.5 defensive rating, which is atrocious. So kind of what you would expect Gobert off and Towns holding things down on the center position, especially with all the perimeter defenders they lost in that deal. With Gobert on and Towns off, it's been bad. They're minus 8.9 points per 100 possessions and 432 possessions. Awful on both ends of the floor. That's got to be concerning because that's where you've got to go now with um, uh, with Carl Towns being out. So now as we kind of talk about what that's going to look like, remember what worked for the Jazz. What worked for the Jazz was Rudy Gobert, everyone chasing guys off the three-point line and funneling to him, and then on the offensive end, tons of ball handling and shooting because Gobert's offensive limitations can be a problem, but he's a great screener and he's a great vertical spacer and he's a great offensive rebounder. So as long as the aggregate lineup spacing and shooting and ball handling is good enough, you can still run a really successful offense with him. The problem is, this is what's crazy. When Gobert's been on the floor without Carl Towns this year, the most used lineup for the Timberwolves has involved Nas Reed. So they're playing two bigs even without Carl Towns on the floor, which just doesn't make any sense. That lineup is Jordan McLaughlin, Jalen Noel, Torian Prince, Nas Reed, and Rudy Gobert. That's the most commonly used Gobert, no Towns lineup. They've played 27 possessions, so obviously a little bit low volume, but they've only had a 70 offensive rating with that group. Just two, two, not enough ball handling, not enough shooting. Um, there are some Gobert lineups that have worked. If you plug in Anthony Edwards for Nas Reed, and now it's Jordan McLaughlin, Jalen Noel, Torian Prince, Anthony Edwards, Rudy Gobert, they're plus 32 net, and they have 142 offensive rating, albeit in a somewhat small sample size, only 19 possessions. Um, so again, like the, the Go-Bear lineups have primarily been bench groupings. They're playing him a lot with Jalen Noel, playing him a lot with Jordan McLaughlin. That's going to change. The Go-Bear-by-himself lineups are now going to be a lot of, like, D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards. And what I'd like to see them do is just go with two wings. And so go with, like, Torian Prince and Jaden McDaniels, for instance. Or, you know, Kyle Anderson and Jaden McDaniels. And just lean on, like, you know, a better version of the Jazz because the Jazz just... Didn't quite have the perimeter defenders, but Kyle Anderson's a really good perimeter defender. Torian Prince is a really good perimeter defender. Jaden McDaniels is a good perimeter defender. Even Anthony Edwards, when he's locked in, is a good perimeter defender. So they could functionally have some groupings that are better versions of what the Utah Jazz do. They just need to actually put those groupings together now that Carl Towns is out of the rotation and they actually move those Gobert lineups into those starting groups. Um... Specifically, when they now I've tried to find some data. They don't have a ton of data when those types of groups are playing, again, because the starters have usually included Cat. But when they've played D'Lo, Ant, Torian Prince, Jaden McDaniels, and Rudy, they're plus 44 net rating, although in a really small sample size. Um, You could also see a little bit of Jalen Noel mixed in there because he's a little bit better ball handler and has a little bit more of that natural scoring feel. But to be clear, at this point, when they have Rudy Gobert – with the starting backcourt. So Anthony Edwards and D'Angelo Russell, no Carl Towns, no Nas Reed. So Rudy Gobert with the starting backcourt and no other big, they are minus fifteen net rating in sixty-three in sixty-three possessions, which is pretty bad. So they're going to have to figure out how to be successful with those groupings. They should be. That doesn't actually that data doesn't even make sense to me. They should be better than that they're going to have to figure that out or the losses will pile up. And this is where I want to talk about Anthony Edwards for a minute because he's been one of the main culprits of the Wolves' rough start. Um, you know, I was really high on him coming out of last season. I believe if I remember correctly I had him 20th in my player rankings, but he was he was somewhere in my player rankings, which is higher than most people had him, and it was I just saw him as a superstar on the rise, a combination of like I called him mini LeBron because he's so big and strong as a downhill threat that bodies just bounce off of him on his way to the rim. And then he had a good pull-up jump shot to end last season. Combine that with what he can do defensively when he's locked in and you see a superstar in the making. But his pull-up jump shooting has been bad this year, just straight up bad. He's shooting just 34% on dribble jumpers this year. And as a result, his pick and roll shot creation has been bad. The Timberwolves have scored just 187 points and 207 Anthony Edwards pick and rolls counting passes, which is in the 36th percentile, just not good enough. And I was watching a bunch of film on it yesterday. He's still deadly when he's going downhill and he's finishing really well around the rim. It's just the pull-up jump. It's just the pull-up jump shooting that's causing problems. And the other thing too that I've noticed too is if he doesn't like the spacing, Like, if he likes his spacing, he's going downhill and he's scoring. But if he doesn't like the spacing and he doesn't get to his pull-up jump shot, instead of, like, going downhill anyway and drawing the defense even closer and making that kick-out pass so at least the defense is in rotation, he'll come off the screen, decide he doesn't like the spacing, and just throw a swing pass. And so i like to see Ant just be a little bit more aggressive, even if he doesn't like what he's seeing, just understanding what advantage he can create just by, you know, taking that extra dribble downhill. With some, with some force, and then elevating and kicking to somebody on the wing, giving them a, a, a rotation situation rather than just a kick-out pass that doesn't accomplish anything. Um, and it's also only getting about a point per ISO, which is only slightly above average. D'Angelo Russell has actually been pretty solid as a shot creator, so I uh, don't, you know, he, D'Angelo Russell is what he is. You know, I, I I I don't think he's considered part of the future in Minnesota, but he's a perfectly fine shot creator in the NBA, especially on the second side. You know, uh, coming into the season, we talked about when they traded, when they made that trade, because Patrick Beverly has been bad for the Lakers this year, but he was good for the Timberwolves last year. And, you know, Timberwolves fans have some complaints about Malik Beasley and his commitment on the defensive end of the floor, stuff like that. I actually thought Malik Beasley was pretty good for them last year, and he shoots the shit out of the basketball. They were depending, after that trade, on guys like Jordan McLaughlin and Jalen Noel to take steps up into those roles, and they just simply have not been good enough. Uh, those two guys are going to have to start playing better if the Wolves are going to have success on the level that they had last year. I was low on the Wolves coming into the season. As you guys know, I'm still low on them. But there is enough talent on this roster to be successful without Cat as long as they lean into that Jazz model. Lots of ball handling and shooting around Carl, T- around Rudy Gobert and then focusing in on the defensive end of the floor Getting into that, you know, uh, classic jazz style screen and roll to the basket. Try to get Anthony Edwards and DeAngelo Russell downhill, and funneling guys to go Gobert on the other end of the floor. As long as Anthony Edwards gets back on track with the better spacing, and Jalen Noel ends up kind of taking that step up, I, I'm not. I don't think much of Jordan McLaughlin, but I actually like Jalen Noel's game a lot. If he kind of steps up into that role, they will hit a groove um, pretty soon, I think. And I, I actually think in the long run, I think. This is not a Carl Towns commentary. This is just commentary on the team. I think in the long run they're going to hit a stride here and I think they're going to play some pretty good basketball. You know, um, it's just a fundamental team construct thing that I disagree with. If you have two bigs, the lineups are too slow-footed and there's not enough ball handling. So I think I think they're going to actually hit a little bit of a stride here without Gobert. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. Again, I sincerely apologize for the technical difficulties yesterday. We will be back tomorrow covering all of tonight's games. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support, and I will see you guys next time.